I've never understood the appeal of doing something and not measuring the impact of doing it. My goal in joining Slack was to build data infrastructure that Google engineers would be jealous of. The two places, and the only two places I think that it really makes sense to get started with data are growth and performance. The question I get asked all the time is like, should I hire a data scientist? And the answer is no, you should not. There aren't that many good ones, and I need all of them. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Josh Wills. Josh has been around the block in his data career. He coined a commonly quoted definition of a data scientist as a person who is better at statistics than any software engineer and better at software engineering than any statistician, a definition I heavily relate to myself. He was the first director of data engineering at Slack and built Slack's logging infrastructure. He worked on Google's foundation for experimentation around ads. He is a self-proclaimed ex-statistician, now working as a software engineer, but stays close to the data space with flaming hot takes on Twitter and by angel investing in the tools he would have wanted back in the day. We discussed the role of a data scientist and whether that's a helpful title for anyone. We covered his learnings at Slack and how much of a difference it makes for a company's data culture when data producers and data consumers are on the same team working closely together. Or furthermore, when they are in fact the same person, which is rare. We also talked about what you can do and where to start to get buy-in for good data culture, whether it's at the genesis or when you are knee-deep in total chaos and want to make it better. Listen in for Josh's stand-up comedy and actionable insights from his life and trauma, I have to say, as a data person. Hello, Josh. Welcome to The Right Track. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. So honored to have you. Um, been following you for a while and it's it's you always have good, juicy hot takes. One of my favorites is a pinned tweet on your Twitter profile, which is uh, your thought from 2012, actually, on yeah. the definition of a data scientist, which I relate heavily to, which is great. Yeah. We'll probably touch on that later. I'll ask you to define that then and now. I think it's it's a long-lived uh, definition. Yes. Josh the prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Could you kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got there? Sure. My name is Josh Wills. Uh, right now, I am a software engineer at a company called WeaveGrid, uh, and we do manage charging of electric vehicles for utilities. Like a lot of people, I've been feeling for a few years that like I should do something to work on climate change. And as a sort of historically a data person, it was tricky to figure out like what exactly I could do 
besides, you know, like making coffee drinks for scientists, <laughs> building batteries or something like that. Um, but that's what I try to do at WaveGrid now. Before that, I used to work at Slack. So I was at Slack for about four years, and I was Slack's first director of data engineering uh, and helped build the team and a lot of Slack's very early 2015-era data infrastructure. Before that, I was at Cloudera, uh, where I was director of data science and like talked a lot about this sort of was at Cloudera from 2011 to 2015, like going through kind of like the whole big data, data science hype cycle, got to like live that whole thing. Went around and mostly like talked to people and told them like how to use Hadoop and how to do sort of again early pre deep learning machine learning and stuff like that. And before I was at Cloudera, I did four years at Google. I was hired actually as a statistician. My my master's degree is in operations research, and Google hired me to be a statistician to kind of analyze uh, their auction system, which is what I studied in grad school. But as soon as I got to Google, all I did was like write software. Like I never would have made it past a Google software engineering interview. But as soon as I was in the door, there was nothing stopping me from writing software all the time. So I did, and it was great. Uh, and so I wrote a lot of software at Google, um, a lot of it for ads. I became very much enamored of Google's experimentation framework and experimentation culture. And so I wrote the Java version of Google's experiment library. It's still used today, which is crazy to me. Um, I, I once asked a Google friend, there are still six to-dos with my name next to them in Google's code base. So I've been gone for 10 years, but I think if I go back, like that's the first six things I'll have to do. I'm never, I, I should say, there might be Google recruiters listening to this. I'm never going back. Never, ever, ever. Stop asking. Leave me alone. And yeah, that's kind of me. I've been doing data stuff like since like when I graduated college in 2001 and I had like a like a 5 gigabyte database. That was that was huge in that 2001. Was big, that was, yeah. it was a big deal. I had a lot of I had a lot of test data back from doing testing microprocessors at IBM. Yeah, that's me. I don't know. I've done some things. And then yes, the tweet and I've given talks and stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah. You profited the definition of a data scientist. Yes. This is still a hot 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 topic. What defines Is it? I think so, yeah. It's funny. I mean, I wrote the definition because in that time, in 2012 or whenever that was, there was this ongoing debate of like data scientists. Pa, nah, not a, not a real thing. Uh, yeah. All scientists use data. <laughs> like data scientists, a bunch of nonsense. What does that even mean? Or what is it? A data scientist is a, is a statistician who lives in San Francisco. I think that was the other definition that was popular <laughs> at the time. Yeah. That's good. Which enough. was true. It was probably, at the time, it was honestly a, probably a better definition. For listeners, yes. let's read the definition. Um, I don't know if you have it top of mind. Would you like me to read it? Oh, God. Would you read it for me? I, say, I try not to think about that thing so much anymore. <laughs> so, data scientist, a noun. Yeah. A person who is better at statistics than any software engineer and better at software engineering than statistician. That's right. That was in the, that was in the 140 character days. So, like, I put that end thing there to say, I am defining something like a dictionary. Yeah. Was only, I only had 140 characters, and I think I used just about all of them. So yeah, <laughs> that is a reference to a writer who was part of the Algonquin Roundtable, like in New York in the 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever name. I think it was his name is A.J. Liebling, I want to say. And he said, as a writer, he was faster than anyone better and better than anyone faster. Interesting. Yes. It'll take some digesting to take that in. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And that was sort of how I thought of what it was to be a data scientist. It was like, you are better at statistics than software engineers are, but you are better at software engineering than statisticians are. Mm -hmm. 
as an input into that, I kicked my data science career off <laughs> before it was called data science when I joined a genetics company. And I was hired as a statistician, and I spent the majority of my time writing software. <laughs> yes, been there. <laughs> but would have never qualified for a software engineering interview. So exactly. I, I heavily relate to this definition. Very much so. However, also uh, later when I was running data science at a company called QuizUp, it was something that I put a lot of effort into, asked everyone to read the book Clean Code and things like that. So we would at least be trying to build like best practices of software engineering, despite having no experience or knowledge <laughs> of the subject. Exactly. Uh, Google made me a software engineer. Like I said, I, I'm actually reasonably confident I still wouldn't pass a Google software engineering interview. Um, but. <laughs> It was an amazing education. I was I studied I studied like math and statistics and optimization and stuff in school. So I did like very little bit of programming here and there, but didn't really know what it was to be a software engineer until I got there. Yeah. Yeah. A little known fact about mathematics is how little calculations you actually do. Very <laughs> when little. You're studying mathematics. I say rarely ever interacted with a number. To be honest with you, it's exactly. Like I didn't see numbers ever. At least not the math I was doing. Yeah, people. Please stop asking us to calculate things quickly in our mind. I know. Or like calculating the tip at a restaurant or whatever. It's like, oh, I don't know. Just get a calculator. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if, you, if you have a differentiable manifold or something, I can help you out. But like, <laughs> Exactly. Is this a group? Yes, precisely. Exactly. Awesome. So thank you for that intro, Josh. Sure. Do you think this definition of a data scientist uh, still holds up? I do. Yeah, I, I think it's still popular and still cited because, again, I don't, I don't know that anyone's done a better job of expressing the idea in fewer characters. I guess so <laughs> it's, it's pithy. Yeah, a little bird whispered to me that um, this has actually also been cited in official research papers. I know it is actually cited in official research papers. I, I, I like most people. You know, obviously, I Google myself like all the time, and mostly my Google Scholar citations and stuff. So I, I do track these things for this. And when I was at Cloudera, my my colleagues and I wrote a book about uh, doing advanced analytics with Spark, and that's it. Still beats the quote for citations, but you know, kind of pound for pound, you know, like whatever citations per character. It's it's tough to beat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. I agree. Like, I think this holds up. Um, another follow-up question of that. Do you think this is a helpful title for people, you know, for job descriptions? You mm -hmm. know, is it helpful for people to understand what your job is going to be about if someone is advertising for a data scientist? I, I think it depends on, you know, is it helpful for the job seeker? Uh, it's helpful insofar as if they want to identify as a data scientist to the extent that they, you know, a lot of people's self-identity is wrapped up in their jobs and they want to be, you know, a data scientist, then I think it's incredibly helpful for the people who are trying to hire people. Whether the title is actually descriptive of what your day-to-day -day life is going to be like, if you have that title across a bunch of different companies, well, probably not so much, you know? <laughs> I think, you know, talking about like more like the modern data stuff, right? Like the, the new data scientist title is analytics engineer. Yeah. That, that actually is useful because it's like if you're an analytics engineer, well, you're going to be building models in DBT. That's what you're going to be doing. It's a title everyone wants, and it's actually descriptive of what you do. Data scientist, title a lot of people want. Descriptive? Uh, yeah. Probably not. I think uh, one of the challenges is like um, there are a lot of people that want to become a data scientist, and then they join a job and the expectation versus reality of what you it's a blow. yeah it's a blow exactly it was it was better it was better for us Steph, back in the day before the title existed <laughs> when it was just yeah. like 
it's it was kind of like, listen, we're, I'm going to be a statistician, but I'm really just going to write code all the time. That's what I'm actually <laughs> going to do, right? I think also maybe another way of how that has changed over time is like back in the day when we were starting off. Um, I think the shaping of what companies were actually looking for in a role like that were they were just so short along, if you could say that. Yes. And so we had the opportunity to just like shape it. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember I, I actually had this happen in my, my I first interviewed for Google. We should have a whole separate podcast stuff, like my my various terrible career decisions. I first interviewed <laughs> at Google in 2005. And I interviewed with uh, the woman who eventually became my boss, who's Diane Tang, who was Google fellow and is like the hands down best boss and most badass engineer I think I've ever worked for. And she interviewed me back in 2005. And she's like, you know, I don't, like I'm looking at your resume and like, are you like a software engineer or a statistician? And I was like, well, like, why can't I do both? You know, like, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I like to do both. Can I do both? And she was kind of like, yeah, sure, you can do both. Okay, come work at Google. And I was like, ah, 2005 Google stock price is like, I think it's like 150 dollars a share. That's way overpriced. That's way. <laughs> yeah. And like, search. Who's going to need that? Like, anyway, yeah. Uh, Passed on that job offer, and she was kind and then took me back a couple years later after I realized my mistake. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it wasn't too late. That's right. It turned out to be fine. Yeah. But I think I think the the first title for like equivalent of Google was like it was decision engineer or something like that, which maybe which you know in a different world maybe that would have been the data scientist title. It could have been decision engineer. That, that's actually like that's not that's not terrible, right? Yeah, I agree. So I want to ask you the classic question that I like to ask all of my guests. Sure. Could you tell us an inspiring data story and a frustrating data story? I think you know. I think back to my my younger. This is this like this is all like the old old timey, back in my day kind of podcast. I remember being first exposed to experiment driven development at Google, where like places I had worked before, smaller companies. You know, we did like analysis. We would analyze data and like do simulations or projections or whatever, and we would try to figure out what was going to happen, and try to figure out like is this idea any good? Should we invest in this or not or whatever. And then, you know, when I got to Google, I started doing that for the ad auction that I worked on. I was like, okay, I'm going to run this simulator. I'm going to replay millions, billions, trillions of auctions and like under different rules and kind of see what we think would have happened and make all these assumptions and stuff like that. And I'm doing this work. And then like this, uh, one of the senior, more senior engineers on my team kind of takes me aside and is like, you know, you could like spend, you know, all these weeks and like thousands, millions of, of computer hours running these simulations or, we could just like implement the idea and just run it as an experiment on like, you know, a million users or whatever, and just kind of like see what happens. And we have all this machinery built to like automatically analyze the experiment and compute confidence intervals and calculate all these metrics and all this kind of stuff. And like, you can just do that. At Google, the rule at the time was like, if you could convince one other engineer that your idea was worth trying, <laughs> that was all that was required to run an experiment on a million people. That was it. And it was amazing. Steph, it was honestly, it was an absolutely amazingly wonderful way to work. I loved it so much. Like it's it's cheesy to say, but like the democracy aspect of it was delightful. And so many, like obviously there were tons of terrible ideas that went nowhere, right? But so many great ideas that no one 
would have thought of or considered or whatever, right? But, but just try it and see and just find out. And everyone is like equal. No one's analysis gets a better. It's all like the whole system is automated. It's there for everyone. It was great. The data speaks for itself. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, it's, I think whenever you are working in environments where like data is like basically directly turns into money, um, and that can be fraud. It can be like obviously ad tech, um, a lot of recommendation stuff, any, any of these kinds of things where it's just really obvious connections. That's how you work. It's not about politics. It's not about blah, blah, blah. It's just about does it work? This is how we measure it. We do it the same for everybody. That's it. That's the rule. Uh, and I loved it. It was, it was great. Um, and I wanted more than anything, I think, after doing it for a few years, I wanted everyone to have experience with like working like that. I wanted it to be that, to be that way everywhere. So that's the kind of the the inspiring story. The disappointing story is the rest of my career, where I regularly like failed to, <laughs> to actually do that. <laughs> like really anywhere else I've been. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, I try. <laughs> What you said about the experimentation is a it's a really beautiful framing, actually, and it's a notoriously difficult thing to plan and estimate software delivery. Yes, you know, absolutely. And I gave that some thought like a while back and obviously continuously it's a thing that you notoriously always think about, like, why is this so difficult? Yeah. Especially if you're like the CEO of a company, it's got to be, it's especially frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So I started comparing it a little bit with like um, the process of building a, a, a dam, for example. A dam, okay. Or some sort of a huge operation where you, there's no undo button. <laughs> It's just like you build it and it fails or succeeds. It works or it just breaks and it's disastrous. And so that's why you don't build dams before, you know, like a 15-year planning process. <laughs> But this is, in fact, the beauty of building software. There are undo buttons. And, of course, if you make the wrong bets, it might cost you things. It might cost you revenue and, like, people uh, getting frustrated and things like that, or, or your customers get frustrated. Yep. It, it has cost, but it doesn't have this extreme cost of, like, no undo button. That's true. And I think, like, the experimentation mindset is sort of also a symptom of this opportunity that we have in software like yes. we do this because we can yes and I, i really got to live that i like once personally cost google about two million dollars with a bad experiment i launched that like essentially disabled the ad system for a few hours <laughs> and i never forget the vp whatever like kind of took me aside and it was like what lesson did you learn from the two million dollars we just spent to like teach you right whatever it was great i cost google tens of millions of dollars in the process of making them hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was just part of the culture and it was fantastic. It was just so, I was just, anyway, so freeing. It was so fun mm -hmm. back in the day. Oh, well, back in the day. <laughs> it's been a long time since then. Yes. All right. So do you have any frustrating data stories mm. top of mind specifics? So many frustrating data <laughs> stories. I mean, where to begin? So many frustrating data stories. Let's see. I sort of did this stuff at Google for a while. Um, and then, you know, I left Google kind of when Google was getting into like Google Plus and social and stuff like that and kind of relentlessly chasing Facebook. And this guy I knew named Jeff Hammerbacher, who is, is, you know, to tie this back to the first thing, is the person generally attributed with coining the term data scientist. 
uh, was working at a company called Cloudera, and he and I were friends, and we would go to baseball games together. And he kind of like was like, you know, in the way that all relationships in San Francisco are somewhat transactional, and we're always trying to hire somebody or invest in somebody or whatever. He just kind of asked me point blank, like, do you actually care if Google or Facebook is like the dominant social networking company in the world? Like, does that actually matter to you in, in any way? And I was like, no, actually, come think of it, I don't know. I don't actually care. So I went to Cloudera to work on something I did care about, which was, you know, making it possible for everyone in the world to work with data the way that we worked with it at Google. That was something I cared about. Um, and so I did that for a few years. It's hard, you know, it's like I'm effectively doing like developer relations stuff. And so you're evangelizing and you're promoting, and it's great and it's very rewarding. And I'm grateful for having done it. At the same time, like I'm flying 125,000 miles a year. You're always kind of removed from the work. Like you're just advising people, you're consulting, but you're not like really like owning it and stuff like that in any kind of way. So it's hard to feel the impact. Uh, and then when my son was born, I really just wanted to stop traveling kind of altogether. And so I went to Slack to build. I think I've said this before, like my goal in joining Slack was to build data infrastructure that Google engineers would be jealous of. Like that was my yeah. goal, right? That was I like that. Yes, yeah, my my revenge-driven kind of <laughs> kind of product development philosophy, which is which is not great for various reasons, but nonetheless, that I wanted to go do this again. I wanted to like I wanted to build stuff. I was tired of talking about building stuff. I wanted to get back to building stuff. And it's a tough one for me, Steph. It is, it's a hard one. Like I'm very proud of like 85% of the decisions I made and the team made building Slack's data infrastructure. I made, again, a small number of absolutely terrible, horrible decisions that still inflict pain and suffering on everyone in Slack to this day because I'm not perfect and stuff like that, right? Um, and I think there's no shortage of these people on Twitter. Like you can easily just go ask them. I think that was, I think it's actually the genesis of this conversation was a whole thread about logging and like mistakes I made at Slack. Though obviously never forgive me for, but that's fine. But, you know, building data infrastructure is not sufficient to create a data culture at the company. You know, you can build the world's greatest data infrastructure, but if it's just the company's not there yet, if it's not time, if you don't have the people in place, if it's not top of mind, whatever, it's just not going to happen. Like, and I didn't understand that. I was very much in the, like, if you build it, they will come kind of mentality. (laughs) And it's just not true. It doesn't work that way. The world's worst myth for any founder. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. I mean, very much so. Very much so. And so the hardest thing for me was like, I killed myself for a couple of years building this stuff and was so burned out and was so drained and was so tired of fighting and was honestly just honestly not a great middle manager or manager or anything really, you know, kind of like it just, it was just horrible that I left. And I, the nice thing was uh, Keith Adams, Slack's chief architect, said something to the effect of Josh is far too good of an engineer to be wasted in management, which was a nice way to say it, that I was you know, not a very good manager. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I think what was hard for me was Slack did eventually become the data-driven company that I had always hoped that it would become. But it happened kind of after me. And it's like the same thing in startups, like being too early is the same thing as being wrong, you know? And so it's this bittersweet thing for me. Like I'm very proud of everything the team did, but will always forever be somewhat sad that I couldn't really be a part of it in some way. Yeah, to reap the benefits of what you had sort of really got good foundation for, though. Indeed. But that's the way it goes, yeah. such, as, such as life. 
I personally relate a little bit to this feeling after having built the data science division at QuizUp. It was a three-year period, and I'm likewise very proud of all of the work that we did. I definitely did get to see some of the benefits, but the company was acquired and I started working on other things sort of exactly around the moment where it would have just been like a really sweet sailing type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, wow, we've built something so cool and it's going to be exactly. so much fun to participate in that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this. This um, is a really great story. Sure. Um, and I think, and I hope actually it's an inspiration because I think this is a shared experience for many people that are the first employee, first data person, founding analyst or founding data engineer role type of thing Absolutely. at a company that is learning and going through a transition of sort of wanting. There's someone at the company high level that wants to be more data driven, but the organization hasn't really learned how to. Exactly. I feel like I should just become like a therapist for these people, like full time. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually probably, but I'm not sure I could like take that much like psychological like pain and stuff on a regular basis. And it's a, like, it's just, I get together with like old Slack people sometimes for like breakfast and stuff. And it's kind of like, God, it's, it's great seeing y'all, but oh my God, is it horrible talking about this stuff? Like, I just, don't, <laughs> I do not, I do not enjoy this at all. Yeah. You're triggering me. I am so triggered. <laughs> I have blocked this out and you are making me remember it. Yeah, we should start a, a therapy sort of agency type of thing, you know. Some kind of some kind of safe space for this. Yes, exactly. And this is literally one of the things that drove me to start Avo. <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, that's it seems like no better way to like therapeutically work through your pain. Or you could be like me, Steph. You could just like angel invest in people who are fixing it for you, and like <laughs> yeah. then you don't you only have to think about it. That's coming up next. <laughs> okay, good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. No, but literally it was, uh, so, uh, you know, I had a post-traumatic stress disorder trigger <laughs> at a company that I uh, started just after, after QuizUp. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, later it was, I think Christmas later that year, I just was talking to all of these people and everyone was just so depressed. <laughs> and I was like, I can't have all of these people that I really, I, I we must be able to fix this. So. I feel you, it's weirdly, you're making me like, feel grateful about my current job because there's nothing at WeaveGrid where I'm like, oh, I must go start a company to fix this. I don't feel that. Like things are at least from the data perspective, stuff, like things are actually like they're pretty good. Like I'm I'm just liking how things are going and it's like pretty chill. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is all right. I'm okay with this. This feels nice. It's very soothing. I'm I'm like I'm in the good place. I don't know. We've come a long way. We really have. Like it's like it's only been like five years really since it was just god awful terrible. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so much better now. This is actually a really good segue into, um, and we've already been touching on this, um, how the industry has been changing. Yeah. And I like to think about this in like a fairly short term perspective, like just a two year type of thing. But obviously, we're also talking about, uh, you know, a more like a seven and 10 year type of thing. So would love to hear your perspective on how the industry has changed in the past years. Yeah, it's funny. Like right after I left Slack in like November 2019, I did the Software Engineering Daily podcast, and and Jeff asked me kind of the same question, and it was interesting because I was talking about like, well, you know, the big news in like December 2019, before you know, shortly before the world ended, right, was really Snowflake. It was like there's this thing called Snowflake, and it's like kind of super great, and it just works, and it like has solved all these problems, and it's it's awesome, and you can build around it, and all this cool stuff happens. And, you know, not for nothing, this is before Snowflake's IPO was, like, mega crazy whatever, and, like, all the investor interest picked up and all this kind of stuff. I was just, like, I was just saying this. It was, like, things in the data world, pretty cool. Like, not so bad anymore. 
And so obviously all that happened. And then over like the last year though, I think it's it's the really exciting thing is like because we have this plumbing now, because we have Snowflake as kind of the center of gravity, we're now starting to build like much, much cooler stuff on top of this underlying substrate, which is like fantastic and is the dream. And so really, you know, like we were kind of alluding to it, but it's like uh it's it's really like for me, it's we have built this plumbing ingestion, like uh, you know, again at Slack, ingestion, compute visualization we built all this stuff ourselves we built our own version of mode we built our own presto s3 data lake thing because we had to there was you know like whatever we built our own ingestion system because we had to right like all this crazy stuff you don't have to do that anymore you can just like swipe a credit card and like five trans segment snowplow you know rudder stack meltano uh airbyte whatever you want it's like it's done it's done you configure it off you go snowflake you got as much compute capacity as you want. I tweeted the other day. I loved it. I was like, can you, I mean, just the genius of Snowflake as a business, making it possible for anyone, anyone who has a question to just throw as much money and compute power as they want to that question. That's like, that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's a license to print money. It's genius, right? Anyway, um, and then the visualization side of things, like Looker, Mode, like, you know, even even Tableau, like, bless their hearts, has finally kind of gotten with the program and is building better product. Like, <laughs> it's just like we've got the end-to-end, like, you can just wire this up, and it's fairly standard, well understood, problems are largely solved. And now we get to start building on top of that. Mm-hmm. And we get to start, like, you know, and again, where I'm super excited about DBT is my, my proudest angel investment by far, as, like, the core, you know, semantic layer where you can buy or you know buy like just use open source dbt packages that implement you know stuff on top of the stripe data api that you pull in from fivetran or, or like whatever this is all just done for you and you like there's just the community is great data community has honestly always been great it's always been awesome but it's just like that much better now and stuff and so yeah i'm excited to see this emerge and i can't wait to see how this percolates out through like ingestion all the way through visualization at the end like this is the dream and again it's you know it's, I, I think back to like when I started doing this stuff like in the late 90s when like you had to pay Teradata like an enormous amount of money for this box that had like limited capacity and stuff. And like, God, kids these days, I tell you, Steph, they have no idea how good they have it, right? <laughs> That's right. It's just fantastic. You, you know, you take the sort of layer underneath you and in infrastructure for granted now, and you are just mostly confronting the problems of building the semantic layer, and it's hard and stuff. And we still spend plenty of time on Twitter shitposting about it, but nonetheless... <laughs> We're just in a vastly better place. And I just, oh, it's, it's just so great to see. Yeah, I totally agree. Obviously, this is super exciting to see all of this these changes happening. And particularly what you're saying about, like, we have the plumbing now. And now it's time to also start finding ways to make the other schlaps of our lives easier, yeah. which is also exciting. Absolutely. It's just absolutely so cool. So on this note, I definitely also want to talk a little bit about like how you think data culture is changing and how the industry is changing with like organizations. And we'll touch on that a little bit later, because I think with all this accessibility and making our lives easier, I wonder what you think about probably one of the most common statements you ever hear, I don't trust this data and how is this changing with all uh, yeah. of this? Uh, why do people not trust data? Why why do people say this? How do we solve it? Yeah, why do people say that? You know, I was talking to the head of data over at Convoy a few weeks ago. Chad Sanderson um, is great. 
we were talking about like the metrics layer and stuff like that. So there's new, new companies that, again, part of this whole semantic revolution, building metrics and stuff like that. And Chad said, the consequence of the fact that like our data infrastructure and our plumbing is so good is that it is cheaper for me to come up with my own metric or ask my own question directly of the database than it is to invest the time and cognitive energy in understanding your model and your definition of daily active user and your definition of blah, 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 right? Like it's just too cognitively intensive to do it. And so I'm better off just asking my own custom bespoke special snowflake question. Like this is a consequence of the stuff being so good. We now have this like new weird problem as a result of it being so good, right? And I, I think that's kind of like what you see here and like the data culture stuff is like this is the problem we're addressing right now is this kind of this fragmentation and the executive team at like these data-oriented companies being like why are there 16 different definitions of DAU for like every part of the company like what the hell is going on here you know from a data culture perspective if you're talking about companies that have already like that have a data culture and that do stuff around data um, that I think is the most interesting kind of problem right now, and most fascinating consequence of this. And I'm, it's it's just neat to see the ways in which we're, folks are approaching and solving it and stuff. If you're talking about like kind of the genesis of data culture, of how does a company transition from like the early stage, vision driven, just crank on the feature to like to like the Google Facebook end state where everything is an experiment and like we experiment on everything all the time, right? That's a fun one. And that that's a whole sort of separate thing. I totally agree. Like a huge reason why people don't trust the data is that they don't have transparency into what the data actually means. And all the different layers of like where did it come from and what transformations have been applied to it and like who did that and all, I mean, yeah, exactly. All of that is yeah, kind of invisible these days. I don't know. Yeah, and um, I think that you've you've hit a really interesting point there, or Chad, Chad hit yes. a really interesting point there. Yes, he did. Saying that it's easier for us now to just try to go to like the premise, the the prerequisites yes. of the world, and like yes. what can I build on top of that to answer my question? But it causes another problem, um, which is like now I am seeing a bit of like conflicting results for where we stand with our go-to-market or something like that. So that's right. it's really interesting. I would love to hear that perspective of data trust from you as well, because I know you built a lot of infrastructure at Slack around the logging. Yes, and we did. And there are so many different teams that work on that, obviously, because every product team needs to think about what they implement for their product. And it's quite difficult to get that unified across everything. Can you maybe talk a little bit about like that as well? Yeah. So I, I guess what, it's funny, like when you asked me the question, I kind of, we were just talking about like modern data semantic stuff. And so I immediately went to this, like, even if you get to the point where you have the underlying data in the same place. Maybe I don't trust the cognitive, you know, infrastructure that's been built on top of it. Like that's the part I don't trust. Then there's the problem of like I don't actually trust the data you generated. Mm -hmm. Like I don't trust the source of this or the provenance. So I have no idea where this came from. Like I didn't do this. And yeah, I want to tie this around to like the the companies making the journey to getting started with data, right? The two places and the only two places I think that it really makes sense to get started with data um, are growth and performance. 
these are really this is kind of like the core. Any company you have anywhere ever has growth problems; they need to drive revenue, and they have performance problems because computers are terrible, software engineers are bad at their jobs, all that kind of stuff, right? And then also, if you're lucky, sometimes you have a machine learning problem, and then you have a machine learning team, right? And for the performance engineers and the machine learning engineers, I kind of think the the sort of data I don't trust this data problem is easier. If only because almost always the person who generates the data is the person who consumes the data. The person who wants to understand the performance problem or build the machine learning model does the logging and the instrumentation to get the data they need to understand the performance problem. Right? And they understand the problem. They understand how the data was generated. They know what they want to do with it. If it doesn't conform to their expectations, they have, again, a good prior, like all this kind of great stuff. So they have all this sort of, again... I need to think of a, of a catchy data science defini- definition for this sort of cognitive superstructure I keep talking about, like that, that clearly deserves some pithy little whatever. So that's great, and that solves a lot of these problems of like trusting the data. The growth team, though, it's probably not necessarily the case. Like the person doing the instrumentation, doing the front end logging, doing like all this kind of stuff, is probably not the data scientist who is going to be analyzing all this stuff on the back end. And so you have this crazy disconnect between these two worlds and inevitably and it's just it's just kind of a bad situation i think generally when the person who generates the data is not the person who consumes it or like vice versa you know and that's really where you need like a whole process and system to manage this relationship be very explicit about things make it easy to visually confirm that the log event is in fact the log event that i thought it was and all that kind of stuff right so my performance and growth Performance slash machine learning, you have one kind of data culture where I don't think data trust is that big of a problem. And then in growth, which is arguably more important than performance, really, for almost all businesses, you have the problem in a, like to the nth degree, like massively, especially when you're talking about like product-led growth in these days. And, like your whole, your whole growth strategy is really around instrumentation as a product. It's, it's a massive thing. And without some structure, process, tooling, it's just basically impossible. Like It just, it just kind of can't be done. Incredible. So we're talking about this in the in the context of data trust, but it's also just such a fundamental piece in how different teams view data. Yes. So when your job description is a software developer and you build products, and then you typically also work, or at least you touch base a little bit with a growth team or a product manager whose job is also to be a data consumer. Mm-hmm. And here you're framing fundamentally... <laughs> Uh, how important it is for data producers and data consumers to work closely together. I remember you talked a little bit about, uh, in a previous conversation we had, about sort of the different teams at Slack, for example, and how this worked for them. Yes. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, like, how did these teams where the data consumers and the data producers did not maybe share a room or a Kanban board or what or a goal or a, a literally a, a head like literally ideally like they, they share like a brain exactly like the consumer and the producer were exactly the same person this was the ideal exactly and that's like that's not going to be realistic for so many situations like for them to literally share a head but how how can we solve this particular part of the problem for the teams that don't share a head yeah between the data consumer and the data producer it's a great question I think there's there's two sides to it. There's like the process side of it, and then there's kind of like the incentive side of it. And I think one of the unfortunate consequences of my stint in engineering management is I'm always thinking about like incentives and promotion processes for engineers and stuff as I as I think about things because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this for like for growth teams, right? So process wise, 
you really can like I think it's a fair point that like as I think about like Jira or whatever, it doesn't have like a great way I think of representing like the logging task correctly. You know what I mean? I mean maybe there's a way of doing this and I'm just not good enough at Jira. But like at Slack, we just have like a spreadsheet, right? And it's like we're developing this feature within the kind of like logging, evolvable logging framework that I developed at Slack, the the clogs and the slogs and all the all the kind of unfortunately named thrift schemas I had. There would just be a list of like, these are the events we're going to create. These are the fields we need for each of the events. This is where they have to happen in the code. And it's basically like a checklist. And we have, we develop, like again, it's like a like a PR, like a ticket, like anything else. You develop the feature, you do the logging for the feature kind of in line for it. And then we test it, you know, have dev tools to help support it. Logging, unit testing to make sure the logs are coming in correctly, like blah, 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 blah. And then downstream of that, we start building it. And I think the growth team at Slack developed this process through like the painful process of like not having this process. And one actually kind of situation I remember was like absolutely disastrous was with the uh, and and Steph, I know you'll appreciate this was like when you're at a high growth company, every I don't know three to six months there's some kind of crisis, and so like your time there is largely defined by crises. And so at Slack, at one point, there was the mobile app crisis i don't really know how to describe it like it was <laughs> it, it was it was a fairly classic thing they did some engineering reorganizations where they broke up the kind of de- dedicated mobile development teams and they embedded them in all the feature teams that did web stuff as well and this is like a very common idiom and the consequence of this was that like the core mobile code base basically went to shit because no one was responsible for maintaining it anymore mm-hmm. and then after like a period of months like the whole app was just like an absolute disaster and so they declared a fire drill and our mobile logging stuff had, for reasons that are, you know, whatever, uh, organizational, political, engineering, whatever, did not have our kind of good, like, schematized logging. It was just, like, JSON lawlessness, basically. And so it was this, like, absolute frantic disaster to, like, instrument this thing as fast as possible and, like, get the log, get the app out there and stuff. And, oh, crap, we put a typo in here. And, oh, no, we camel cased it here versus here. And, like, ah, no, what have we done? And yeah, it was like it was it was just the worst possible situation because it's like the data scientists, the data engineers are working on like the highest priority, you know, total visibility in the company, and the data is just terrible. And it, you got the problem of like, well, once the app's out there, it's out there forever. We need to live with these logs for basically eternity, right? Yeah, it was just it was just horrible. And I think you know, it's it's the kind of thing, Steph. You know, where like there's not really rewards for like solving these problems ahead of time. But like when you come after the disaster and after you see the terrible and you come up with like, this is the process and this is the system. And now we have schemas and there are types and everything's going to be fine. And we're going to test it all. Like all the, that's the hero. That's the true. Anyway, the tooling was like, okay, it wasn't great. We didn't have, we had developer experience engineers, but we didn't have like one dedicated to making the logging system better for the growth engineers. And so you can have all the process you want, but bringing this back to the incentives, like doing the logging is not like super fun for like the front end engineers. This is not like a this does not spark joy. They're not getting promoted because they did like more logging better and stuff like that. Really, like you get promoted for you know developing good tooling or making stuff super cool or doing like neat front end stuff. And you know, sadly, like doing the logging is is not that. And so it's again, it's. Like we have to have a process, and we need a process, and the data is important, and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's like it's hard to make it ever really as good 
as like the pure joy and happiness of the machine learning engineer or the performance engineer who's like in their loop doing their thing thinking about how they're going to analyze this data as they're creating it like ah it's the best it's the best step it's tough to beat yeah and i'm asking you like how do we solve this like how do we spark joy like how do we make this fun yeah that's a really great question so one of my favorite things to see when i'm working with organizations is the transition from developers seeing analytics as a task to be done that has nothing to do with the end user Mm -hmm. into seeing it as one of the fundamental tools that they have so that they can build better products for the customers that they are serving. Absolutely. And this, I think, is a lot to do with like creating a loop where they are part of product decision-making and product strategy in some way. Mm. And they see that the impact that they have made by ensuring that, you know, we have proper understanding of how customers are using the things that they built. That's right. um, And they see the impact of that applied to how do we decide on our next steps. That's a leap for a company too. I mean, that's that's a leap for a company going from a what do you mean? Our, we don't have OKRs. We don't have metrics. We just like ship features. That's what we do. And that's kind of what you're talking about. It's not just about. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like that is that is a leap. But you know, again, I, I lived through that transition at Slack, and it was you know unfun. Mm-hmm. It was a bummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the engineers again like the certainty of like I will get promoted if I ship features. I don't actually care about the impact of the features. Like I'm going to get promoted if I ship features and stuff. And like like making that transition to like, no, <laughs> you get promoted for solving problems, not for shipping features, right? That's exactly. The two are not one and the same. That's a fun one. Ooh, no amount of money you could pay me to go through that again. <laughs> I'm going to like thinking about that. Yeah. It's interesting. Like one of my favorite metrics is literally uh, for seeing the cultural impact the, the, or the just the team impact of transitioned data culture mm. is literally just the conversion rate of developers looking at charts or asking data questions yes. as a follow-up of them building something. Totally, 100%. And it's really interesting. Like, I think one of the fundamental mistakes I s- often see organizations do is like they try to do this as an organizational change for the entire organization as opposed mm. to try to start and like you're saying like team. try to yeah exactly yeah. they try to build like now we have an OKR so we have to measure all of the OKRs versus just like hey we just we have a bat in mind and we want to just check that out and then you get a full closed loop and a case study for the rest of the organization for like three or four people and they're happy totally I give I give Slack credit for that. They did roll out OKRs kind of team by team, and it was an evolution and stuff. But it was also a, a thing that was told that was coming and was met by some degree of dread, I think. Mm-hmm. For reasons, again, I understand, but yeah. disappoint me. I don't know. I've worked with a lot of companies when I was at Cladera, and it was always fascinating to me to see in whatever industry I worked in, what did people actually care about? And this is where, like, I don't know if I can say this, but whatever. Like, <laughs> The nonprofit industry is in many ways the absolute worst about this, where for a lot of nonprofits, when I talk to them, it's very clear to me that they don't care about measuring the impact of what it is they're trying to change. They care about making the impact look good so they can get more donor money. That's what they Mm -hmm. actually care about. And it's like very disheartening to find that a lot of places. A lot of industries where like the incentives are not at all 
aligned with actually like changing the problem. And that's kind of the same thing we're talking about here. It's like when you're talking about shipping features, you're basically assuming that these features are going to solve the problems the features are intended to solve and that someone else has done the process and is like an all-knowing oracle who can just predict ahead of time that yes, if we ship this feature, it will solve all of our problems and stuff. And like obviously. And that's just like not true for anyone ever under any circumstances, right? <laughs> and so I just, I've never understood the appeal of doing something and not measuring the impact of doing it. And maybe this just makes me too much of an engineer. Like, I don't know. Why would you do anything if you weren't like concerned about measuring the impact of it? Like, what is the point? Exactly. Like, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to ship the next feature that we need to solve the next problem. Like, but that, how do you know? Yeah. Because they, they said it would. That's, you know, yeah, it's, exactly. This is a really good point about, uh, and I want to tie this together with like um, the experimentation, yes. um, the evolution into being an experimentation organization. Yes. And I think like trying to close the loop on not even with an experimentation, just like some simple way of measuring, did we see the without too much over engineering for the first iteration like don't adopt an ap testing tool for your first thing that you want to measure of course not just like you know did did someone convert to doing the thing that we wanted them to do and like do the people who do convert to the thing that we just built do they maybe do something else now in the product as well um and just be like a little bit retroactive in that and i think that is a really good birth into being an organization that wants to make uh, or sort of be a little bit more experiment driven. Yes, it is. And I think, you know, the thing I console myself with stuff, and as, again, it's like kind of like the, the bittersweet aspect of, this, of doing the Slack experience, is that all companies reach this point. They always do. They have to. If they don't reach this point, they go out of business or they get acquired by somebody, right? They all have to reach this point. Getting there is messy and hard and is, is different and for everyone and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I used to start asking, under what conditions would we roll this back? We're doing this thing. Right. Under what would have to happen for us to like say, oh God, what have we done? Like, let's roll this back. And if the answer is nothing, there's nothing we can do. Like, this is the right thing to do, period, full stop. There are no circumstances under which you know, signups could go to zero. We don't care, right? Like, whatever, this, this is fine. Um, okay, like, then do it. And don't measure it, right? It doesn't matter. But as soon as you know... I find that at least at Slack, I had a lot more success, and I've, I've talked about this a few times, is like framing experimentation and metrics in the early days as a de-risking mechanism, like not as a North Star. The North Star is your vision, product manager, CEO. That's the North Star. What does productivity feel like to you? That's the true vision. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being I'm sarcastic. No, I'm making fun. <laughs> What's bad? What would badness look like? How would we know if something was bad? How would we know if like things had gone off the rails? That's actually like a like think of it as like it's an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. It's not a north star. It's not going to replace your decision making ability. It's an insurance policy. It's a check. It's a way of confirming. It's a regression regression, regression measuring tool. It's that. It's safe. It's not threatening. It's like totally fine. And you, I've found I was like a lot more success with that. And hopefully, none of those product people will hear me saying this. This is this is the gateway drug to. The, the purely metric OKR experiment-driven world that I'm going to pull them into kicking and screaming. That's okay. They can always go to the next company. They'll just go work at the earlier stage company and they'll be happy. It'll be fine. Um, but I, I do think it's the way. I do think it is, it's the safe place to start, I think, for a lot of data teams. 
I totally agree with it. And and even, you know, because it's it's not only always about starting the experimentation culture, it's also about what you're identifying and talking about right there is not all things that you built are necessarily you don't necessarily have to measure them as an experiment. Of course not. Absolutely not. Back in the day when I was facilitating a lot of purpose meetings, as we called them, there was like a, mm. a way to bring the data consumers and the data producers together and talk about like, hey, okay, what's the goal of this release here? Uh, well, based on that, we should probably measure this and this and this. Okay, based on that, we probably need this and this and this data point. Yep. I would typically throw in for the developers that obviously had objections about like duplicating their code base for an A-B testing purpose, um, and they just wanted to iterate on the code and just ship things. Yep. And I would typically try to just leave it up to them and say like, okay, cool. I mean, are we concerned that our day one retention goes down because of this or is that? Yeah. And if they were, it would be their estimation. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So on this note, yes. I think you, you talked about the, the growth team's challenges and we've touched a little bit on like... Um, data culture and how org structure impacts it. Yeah. And we talked about, you know, being the founding data person and all those things and how that should and can evolve. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like how the org structure evolved at Slack and what were the or at any, you know, company that comes to mind for you for this and how you think like a, a potentially a, a what was a good example of a team that managed to do this well for like getting data to work with product yeah. and how could they maybe have done things differently if, if it wasn't good? Yeah, totally. When I think of the companies that did this well, and I don't include Slack as one of the companies that did this well, I think generally when I give people advice, like I don't, I can't tell you what to do. I can give you detailed instructions on what not to do. <laughs> I think of Airbnb as a company that actually, in my perception, got data right, at least organizationally, for a long time. And again, they made mistakes and they had pain and suffering along the way because that's just that's just life, right? Stripe also probably qualifies by this metric. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence. These are both remarkably successful companies. You can think of this like actually with early Facebook and early LinkedIn too. And the thing that all these things have in common was there was a person there early, early, early in the company, deeply trusted by the founders. Um, something like Riley at Airbnb, like um, my friend Michael Monopod at Stripe, uh, DJ Patel, obviously LinkedIn, Jeff Hammerbacher at Facebook, where had like they had a relationship, strong relationship with the founders. Um, DJ because they were all at PayPal together. Jeff because he and Mark went to Harvard together. Blah 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 blah. Right, um, a lot of trust there, like a lot of delegation to that person, a lot of executive support, like hundred percent. Right, to build a strong and largely independent data organization within the company, and also not for nothing like a business. Where was Airbnb with search, Stripe with fraud, Facebook with, well, I guess ads, whatever it is, like where there's a significant data component, where being super good at data is deeply important to the company, right? These are kind of the conditions, I think, under which like data teams truly thrive for at least, at least a while in this sort of independent function with that sort of strong executive support, right? Now, this is not most places. And like this, these are sort of magical conditions. Like you can't engineer this, right? You can't like put, you know, the CEO and the data person in a math class together in college doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> and so most companies don't come up this way, and Slack certainly didn't. Uh, and as a result, data at Slack was sharded across 
every organization. So the analytics team reported up through business operations, which is like finance and GNA and stuff like that. So again, you got to remember Slack's early in product-led growth. Like our billing system depended on product usage and like product analytics because it was like you only paid for the seats you actually used. And so, okay, well, what does that mean, right? So the billing systems, the ARR, the MRR, all this early stuff was all done by the data analyst team off of like read replicas of production data to figure out how to bill people because like that was what you had to do. The marketing team had their own MarTech stack, which was all just for them. It was like a lot of third-party services and stuff like that, right? So anyway, as oh, and then I mean, obviously, customer success needed lots of data because Slack was doing very early major investments in customer success, so they needed all this data, right? And then when kind of things got big and out of control enough to the point that they like hired me and hired a data engineering team, the company's already like 250 people at this point. Well, I'm an engineer, and my title is data director of data engineering, so I report up through the engineering hierarchy. And of course, the engineers need data too. They have performance problems and stuff like that they need to understand. So everyone needs data. And so when I looked at the org and I looked at all the customers I had for the data platform I was building, right? the only person all of these people have in common as a boss is the CEO of the company. And that's really tricky. That's a, that's a, if, you, if you find yourself in a position where you have like all these different customers and this is the only person they have in common, like you're kind of fucked. Um, I don't really know how to break this to you. Like you should quit like right now, because the thing that you know these other orgs had was they had like data orgs led by one person who was trusted by the CEO to do this data stuff, basically, right? And therefore, they all had a boss, and therefore, they could have alignment around, like, what the hell should we do? What are our priorities? Whereas me, trying to build infrastructure, trying to hire a team, I don't have time or, like, to understand the full context of, like, all the things these people need and, like, what I can do with, like, the three engineers I have (laughs) to support the entire company. Uh, And so I did a bad job of it, you know, because, like, I was... I wasn't super good at it, and like was kind of under like fairly impossible circumstances that I think even the person who was good at it would have had a hard time with, right? There's a fun conversation going on right now, Steph, around data product managers. I don't know if you saw this one go by, data product managers. Hiring the first data product manager at Slack was like the greatest day of my life. Like It was so great. When did that happen? Oh, it happened, honestly, ironically, right as I was kind of like conceptually like on my way out. It would have been like, God, I think it almost been like 2017. I can't like imagine. I made it like, Jesus, Steph, I made it two years without her. Her name's Austin Wilt. We, we interviewed a whole bunch of people for it. It was like one of those classic interviewing things where like you interview the first person and it turns out they're great, right? But you don't hire them because it's like literally the first person you hired. So we interviewed this wonderful woman named Deep D who's had a phenomenally great career. But it was like, she was great. And we're like, ah, she's great, but like, obviously we can do better. We're slack. And like, we interviewed like 20 people and they're all just like terrible. And like, we let her go and she went to Uber or some shit. I'm like, no, right? It was just the worst. <laughs> and then we finally, we finally found Austin and we finally interviewed Austin. And uh, so there's a woman named Austin Wild who I absolutely think the world of. And I don't mind embarrassing in the podcast by talking about how awesome she is. And hired her to be her data product manager because, like, literally, her first job was to unfuck the shit show of like <laughs> requirements gathering, failure, like what is actually important for the business across marketing, customer success, engineering, like you know, analytics, finance. Oh, we want to go public someday. Oh, like blah blah. Like what product? What what actually do we need to do? Like what is actually important? And since I had failed to do that, it fell to her to figure that out. And I was deeply grateful for it because it made my life in, it just infinitely better as an engineer, as an engineering manager. That's incredible. Right. So that sounds like a crucial hire. 
It's an absolutely crucial hire. It's an absolutely crucial hire. My other sort of bit of advice would just be, if you're going to do this kind of job, just and your and your only person you're going to have in common is like the the boss, while your customers is the CEO. Just make sure you're just goddamn as absolutely aligned with that CEO as humanly possible about what he or she wants from the data team, because I wanted to build data infrastructure that Google engineers would be jealous of. That was what I wanted to do, and that was what I did. And that's, and that's sort of like why Slack still largely runs on the data infrastructure I built six years ago. So like, <laughs> we did a good job. We, did, we built some kick-ass data infrastructure. But what Stuart really wanted to know was like, right now, at this second, wherever I am on Earth, I want to know how much money is Slack making? How many seats do we have? Like, blah, blah, blah. This is actually what I care about. This is actually what I want to have happen. And I didn't do that because I'm like, oh, that's just some silly flight of fancy the CEO has. He doesn't actually need to know that. He can know it tomorrow. It's fine. Not actually true. Don't don't dismiss what the CEO wants because you think you know better than he does. Hmm. Like why this wasn't obvious to me, I'm not sure. I'm not very smart, um, but I learned my lesson now. I guess I don't know. I, I, is that, can I blame it on being a new father and like I wasn't sleeping for six months and stuff? Is that I don't know if that counts. I don't know if that's a valid excuse, but just like brain dead, stupid stuff. Just so stupid. Yeah, yeah, I think another aspect to think about that is just like when you're building the first steps of the data driven organization. It's really difficult to thread the delicate path of like, when are you supposed to use your time to do stuff that just does not scale at all and will forever depend on, you know, the human throughput of yourself versus trying to build something as an investment for the future? Yes. True for every engineering manager and every everyone. I think the nice thing is like I always talk to I can talk to any engineering manager, engineering leader, and they can tell me no matter where they work and what field, where they are in the company, why their job is the hardest job in the world. <laughs> and they, they kind of have a point. Like I hear about like, you know, I hear about like the mobile engineering problems we had at Slack. I'm like, oh my God, thank God I'm not that guy. That's horrible. <laughs> And then you have like the engineering directors who are like in charge of like the core crown jewels of messaging, like which is Slack is like the absolute you know gold standard core thing. But then it's like, yeah, you you have lots of resources, but what you also have is a lot of attention, like a lot of attention, like maybe too much attention. Like maybe it'd be better if Stuart paid attention to some other product for a little while, so we can like get some stuff done around here. Like yeah. maybe you know, like yeah, just maybe it'd be nice, be nice to not be the crown jewels of the company. It'd be nice to kind of be off to the side and not like have this like glare facing you all the time right excellent so everyone everyone's miserable you know and it's it's i don't know i i enjoy it we used to do these data team lunches like it's at slack kind of in the early days we get everyone together you know in the before times like once a quarter like you all go out for lunch or you go over to like to pinterest or dropbox or airbnb whatever we all have lunch together and we get the data teams we talk about our problems and it was just an awesome like you know, exercise and think, man, thank God I am not Dropbox's data director of data engineering. Jesus Christ. <laughs> this guy's just trying to keep his name note up. Oh, anyway, yeah. That's very good. I have two follow-up questions. Yeah. The first one is a, is a simple one. Um, how big was the organization when you hired the data product manager? Oh, uh, company gotten big by that point. It's a good question. I think Slack was 240 when I joined and it was like maybe 1,200 or so when I left. So, I mean, I think like, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting because obviously we grew in like fits and spurts and stuff like that, right? But I want to say like 600, 700, something like that. And do you think it should have happened sooner? Oh, hell yeah. They should have hired her before they hired me, for the love of God. <laughs> like, oh, hell yeah. I mean, like to be building stuff in isolation with someone who doesn't, you know, in this impossible job that's distinct from every other engineering director in the company who has like features to ship. And there's like me, I'm like over here, okay. 
yeah, like supporting customer success and marketing and finance and you know the pro- oh yeah the product too that thing. I actually love that your that your answer was this, uh, even though I'm not like I, I don't know if if you're right that they should have hired her before you. But I'm giving a talk at um, DBT's conference in, in December. Coalesce. Coalesce. Yeah. Great. And that's awesome. The name of the talk is "Don't Hire a Data Engineer Yet." <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, I have another stuff. I have a favorite tweet that's uh, that's not as popular as the data scientist one, but it's the same kind of thing. Which is the the question I get asked all the time, which is like, should I hire a data scientist? And the answer is no, no, you should not. There aren't that many good ones, and I need all of them. And you should not hire a data scientist. <laughs> I at least totally agree with um, you know one of the implicit things that you're saying there is like it's really important to have good infrastructure, but like the the first thing to solve really is like building relationships and bridging gaps between, you know, data needs and stakeholders and all those things. Yes, totally. And, and to your point, I mean, like, again, things have gotten much better. You don't need to hire me to build like, you know, a custom version of Presto. <laughs> like mm-hmm. don't, you don't need to do that anymore. You can just like, swipe, again, swipe a credit card. It goes a long way. Credit card, reasonably smart engineer, can really build you some pretty kick-ass data infrastructure these days, like with not much work. It's it's kind of great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, again, I, I, like we have, I think I'm fortunate we have, we have some very data savvy product managers. I'm pretty sure one of them could have done done it like themselves. It's not that hard. Mm. I, I mean, I did it faster because I'm like, this is what I do. But like, they could have knocked it out in a couple weeks. <laughs> it t- took me like a day. It took them a couple weeks, right? Anyway, yeah. This is probably a good segue into what are some of the things you wish existed or you wish you had back then. Or even like even probably now, but I know that you have already shared your your yeah. sail, sailing a dream boat right now. But you know, can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I think honestly, then Steph, I dreamed of being where I am now. I think where like I don't. It was kind of funny. I remember like working with Jeff at Cloudera like back in like 2012, and us talking even back then about like oh, thank God we don't have to think about infrastructure anymore. Like, thank God we can just like, we can start talking about problems. We can start like thinking about the data and machine learning and stuff like that. And that turned out to be like not remotely true at all for like a better part of a decade. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like, I feel like the world that I would wish for in 2015 is like, again, from an infrastructure perspective, is the world I live in now. So, again, I am like, if, if like happiness is all about managing expectations, I am the world's happiest data engineer. <laughs> and I think, you know, what I wish for. You know, inevitably, I think is is the thing that I feel like I I don't I haven't like started a data tools engineering company because I kind of am like you know again I I invest and I look around and I'm like okay this is good good people are building the right stuff like I wish I could make them like you know play nicely together and stuff and I feel like a lot of my job is like drawing connections between things that I think are important right. But like really like building this end-to-end semantic layer, like where it's like from the ingestion side of things, the data generation side of things, all the way through the modeling, the transformation, all the way to the visualization to the end. Like this is what we're doing. Like this is the world right now. And like what the right combination of pieces is, whether it's like we need the metrics layer or we need this or we need that or whatever. I'm not sure. We're figuring it out. And it's super fun and it's really exciting. And like that said, if someone said to me, Josh, we're gonna figure this all out tomorrow, it's done, I'd be like, fucking great. Next problem. Like, that's awesome. That's, that's what I want. It doesn't work that way, obviously. Like, it's, I'm saying this now, right? Oh, thank God. Like, I don't know, Steph, what comes after the semantic layer? Like, what do we do after we're done with this layer? Like, what's next? Yeah. Those are the big questions. 
it'll probably be like again bringing this back around to the to Chad Sanderson. Like it's when we solve the semantic layer problems, it will reveal the problems that we need to solve in the next layer. And like the the semantic layer needs to solve this problem of like because the plumbing is so good, I can just do whatever I want and build my own sort of cognitive superstructure, which makes it difficult for us to work as a team and a company. So therefore, we need the semantic layer to solve that problem. And then when we solve that, it will reveal, I guess, the next problem. Because again, if, if you told me, yeah, Josh, in like 10 years, the data infrastructure is going to be so good that like this is going to be the problem. The problem is that anyone, everyone can have, create their own individual personalized data world effectively they live in that's that's going to be the problem i'd be like yeah sure whatever <laughs> yeah we wouldn't have, wouldn't have believed you it would have been you sound like a crazy person yeah uh, exactly i do want to also just follow up with my other follow-up question which was you know we were talking about um when you were talking about the data product management mm. and you also talked a bit about like the growth group yeah in our last conversation and you talked about a lot of the tooling that was developed and the processes that were developed around logging, they were sort of, I guess, developed through the growth team, yes. partially because you know they needed to bridge the gap between different stakeholders. They needed it, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about like what stage of the company that was at and how that developed? I so I don't know the growth story as well as I would like, in the sense that I was obviously paying attention to my own you know, absolute dumpster fire over in data most of the time, right? But I mean, I think, to me, again, like the story of every company step is really a story of hiring, who hired when and stuff like that. I remember when we hired, you know, like Kelly Watkins, who's now the CEO of Abstract, that leveled up. Like, so Mercy Grace led growth at Slack. She hired Kelly. Kelly was like an absolute step function raise in terms of like the quality of like our growth team, data usage, all that kind of stuff. She was just amazing. She just, again, she came from that world, right? She went on to become eventually the head of marketing at Slack. So she was like, and now she's CEO of, of Abstract. She's an absolute, you know, total badass. And then Fareed, Fareed Muscovat, who's uh, over, he's doing, he's a fellow or something at OnDeck right now, helping new people start companies. He came from Zynga and Instacart. Again, super data experiment driven mm-hmm. people who were used to these logging problems and stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it was really the thing with my, with building the data infrastructure I built and like building it kind of in, in the early days of Slack was building like a ghost town, you know, or like this empty city. But what I was really waiting for was these people to come. I was waiting for like the Kellys and the Farids and the engineers we hired from Google and Facebook and stuff who expected this stuff, mm. you know, who knew that this stuff had to exist and they knew that they knew how to use it and they knew how to make it sing. And again, in the kind of bittersweet sense, it's like the great joy I got was seeing them use this stuff to make Slack better like really was like you know again even as i had like left they were taking kind of the foundations i built and making them better and filling in the things i missed and fixing the problems i introduced and doing great stuff with it Mm. and it was anyway i just yeah it was absolute absolutely bittersweet thing to see them do such awesome stuff but sadly not be a part of it anymore so yeah (laughs) yeah it's just about people it really is about people stuff it's about people who've who've been there, who've seen it done, who know how it works and can bring it with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. This is awesome. And this has been absolutely fantastic. I want to maybe wrap things up with just like talking a little bit about how people think about building their data cultures. For example, talking about misconceptions and what people should do to get things right. And a segue into people's biggest misconceptions about data and how how data and product analytics should work together and work in general. Uh, One thing that, you know, 
comes to mind is what you just shared, like how people think about like, what are the CEO needs versus what is the infrastructure uh, that we need? And I want to leave it as an open question to you. Like, what do you think are people's biggest misconceptions about how data and product analytics should work or do work? I mean, I think the biggest illusion to sort of dispel yourself of is that like the data is ever right. And and I'll I'll use just the my favorite one. I think like one of the one of the you know warm up questions here for this was like you're asking like what do people always get wrong in analytics? The thing I see most common is uh is users. How many users do we have? <laughs> how many how many users are there of Slack? Well, I have no idea. There it's like how long is the coast of England? Well, it kind of depends on how you measure it, right? Exactly. That's the biggest misconception. I think that people operate under some sort of platonic ideal where it is possible to like actually determine how many humans used our product today. And it just isn't, it's just not. And kind of back to like the idea of like the trusting data stuff. Like I I think the problem people have is they go in naively assuming that like there is a concrete answer to this, to this question of like how many users do we have? Cause it seems like, seems like the kind of thing it's like pretty straightforward, right? It's like how many people (laughs) use it? It doesn't seem like this should be so hard. And when they find out that it's not actually easy, and it's basically, in fact, pretty goddamn near impossible to actually figure this out. They are very much disheartened and disillusioned, and they trust nothing. And they kind of go to like the way they go way existential, nihilism, whatever. Like you know, they're they're done with all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then the kind of the the galaxy brain thing, because it's it's just all we speak in memes these days, right? Is figuring out yes, this is wrong, and yes, it's a lie, and yes, there's all these problems with it. But we still got to use it to make progress and figuring out like how to understand the limitations of this thing and still make progress with it despite them to make things better for everybody. That's the enlightenment moment. But it's it's hard and not everyone gets there and stuff. A lot of people are just like, yeah, fuck this. We can't possibly know. So like, let's just ship features basically. And that's that's the thing. Yeah, this is the perfect segue into, I think, what I want to maybe leave our audience with, which is just like, you know, well... Okay, and that's very disheartening, and I agree, and I've seen so, so many people go through that. What do you think is the first thing teams should do to start getting their analytics right? I mean, I, the first thing I did at Slack, the very first thing I did, which which I did an okay job of, but did not do, and I, like I don't, I'm not here to shill for Avo, like although anyway, was was introduced like evolvable logging, schematized logging, and I said in my very first week at Slack, I got everyone together and said, here you go. There's Avra, there's protocol buffers, there's Thrift. We're going to pick one of these things. And from here on out, this this format is the only thing we will accept in the data warehouse. We will not ingest anything that doesn't come with a schema with types. And we're building this, and it's designed to be evolved, and it'll have all this tooling, and it will impose all this cost on everyone forever who wants to write anything to the data warehouse. It's not a free-for-all. It's not JSON anymore. But it will pay dividends for the company basically forever in ways that you can't appreciate. Like Slack right now can go back and reprocess the application logs from 2015 whenever they want. They can just do that. They always can whenever they want to. It's amazing, right? Uh, Not a lot of companies can say that, I assure you. That's the most important thing. That was the very first thing I did, Steph. Like literally like providing that foundation, that container. And I think what's, again, that's exciting about the new world we're entering is like Avo exists. Mm. And you can do a much better job of it than I did because you can impose not just like not just structure and syntax, but like semantics in a lot of ways around these things, which is which is exciting to me. It makes me very happy. That's the most important thing. If you get that, it's I don't know. Jeff once told me about about managing. He said if you hire the right people, 
and you motivate them properly. You can do everything else in management wrong and you'll still be okay. But if you don't get those two things right, you can do everything else wrong and it won't matter. You're still screwed. And I feel like in many ways, like my career is like a living embodiment of that principle. Like that I, to the extent that anything I did right, it was because I hired well and I motivated, motivated people because I did literally everything else wrong. And that's how I feel about like the modern data stack stuff. Like, which is if you get serious early, even more serious than I was about committing to structured logging, committing to like strong semantics around this stuff, it will pay dividends for you. I know it's not free. I know it kind of sucks. It will pay dividends for you forever forever and ever and ever like your future use like will thank you and so, that's actually not true they will mm-hmm. still hate you for the few decisions you made but never mind. they won't appreciate you but i will appreciate you <laughs> i will see you it's actually my favorite thing to do and like in data conversations with people is talk about this stuff because the data people get it they know how great it is because they've lived the pain and suffering of not having it that way so anyway mm. that's the most important thing to get right it really is excellent i think those are great final words um I want to thank you so much for taking the time. It was amazing. Thanks for having me. It's been super insightful. I know that this is just number one. It's so good to get the validation that you're not alone in the world. (laughs) But I also know that everything that you're sharing is super valuable for so many people that are um, not only just starting their journey, but also on their journey and trying to to do things better. So thank you. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in The Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via avohq.com.